that diversity of uh, upbringing, right? Having grown somewhere and, and going to another place is good. The diversity, for example, of a career, the fact that I spent a good chunk of my career in academia, a good chunk in industry, that diversity, I think, has helped me understand things better, help understand the impact of technology and research better. But if we can remember that we uh, were labeled before people knew anything about us and think that that happens to Hispanic kids today. We both left our parents' houses, we got married, we went to live together, we moved to another country. <laughs> um, so we had to learn, we, like, it was very, we created a very strong bond there. Welcome to the Immigrant Computer Scientists podcast, where we talk to computer scientists who immigrated from their home countries for study or for work or for other reasons. In these oral history interviews, you will find established and renowned computer scientists from across academia and industry, narrating their experiences of immigrating from where they grew up to a completely different land, often the US. My name is Indy Gupta, and I'm your host. Many immigrant computer scientists have a linear path, first into computer science and then into the US. Not today's narrators, they went to and fro. Today's episode features three renowned computer scientists who immigrated in more than one way. All three immigrated from their common home country to the US. All three of them then immigrated back to their home country. And then a few years later, they again re-immigrated to the US. One of our narrators also immigrated from architecture, the one dealing with building architecture and not with computer hardware, into computer science. Also, all three of today's narrators immigrated between academia and industry, to and fro in more than one way. One of our narrators is a member of the National Academy of Engineering, also known as NAE, a very prestigious national organization in the US, and also an IEEE fellow. Our second narrator, was a head of her computer science department and an associate dean, and also spent over a decade in IBM research. And our third narrator, the youngest of them all, stood first among 42,000 candidates in the entrance exam to one of Brazil's largest universities, UFMG, and then also spent time in academia and in industry. All three also happened to be from the same nation in South America, Brazil. Rather than generalizing or drawing conclusions about these oral histories, this episode highlights a few common themes and the very different experiences of these three narrators in their own voices. These are only excerpts from the full oral history interviews, which will be available as the subsequent episodes in this podcast. A little bit about the history of Brazil. According to an excellent article in the New York Times titled A Brief History of Brazil, Brazil proclaimed independence in the 1800s and was subject to military rule in the 1900s. We'll come back to that later in the episode. With a population of 210 million as of 2019 and an area of 3.28 million square miles, Brazil is the sixth most populous country and the fifth largest country in area in the world, respectively. We may hear a bit more of Brazil during the soccer tournament years or in the political news, yet the support for education and universities and the tech sector in Brazil has been strong over decades. So much so that 
you may have heard of the BRIC nations, B-R-I-C, four nations that are some of the fastest growing economies in the world. Brazil is the B in BRIC, the others being Russia, India, and China. While a lot of this growth in Brazil started around the 2000s, you'll hear from our narrators that the groundwork for Brazil's growth in the tech sector and IT and computer science started well before the 2000s. Oh, and our three narrators also grew up in three different decades. To pick a point of comparison, they received their PhDs respectively in 1986, 1997, and 2008. Today's lead episode features three computer scientists who immigrated from Brazil. I briefly described the speakers in the order that you have heard them so far. So that you may recognize them, here they are. The first voice is that of Rico Malvar, now a distinguished engineer at Microsoft and one of the original directors of the Microsoft Research Labs itself. Rico immigrated from Brazil to the US first in 1982 for his PhD at MIT, then returned to Brazil in 86 to be a professor at a Brazilian university, and then re-immigrated to the US in 1993 to industry and stayed in industry and in the US for good. I wondered what made him go to and fro. Here's his voice for your reference. That diversity of uh, upbringing, right? Having grown somewhere and, and going to another place is good. When you hear this voice, remember, 1960s high school, 1970s BS, and 1980s PhD. Our second narrator is Dilma da Silva, a professor of computer science at Texas A&M University and a recent head of that department. Dilma first immigrated to the U.S. in 1990 for her PhD at Georgia Tech, returned to Brazil, yes, to be a professor in 1997, but then again re-immigrated to the U.S. in 2000 to join IBM Research. Her to-and-fro journey was not done, though. She immigrated from industry to academia in 2014 to become a head of her department, like I mentioned earlier. What made her go to and fro, I wondered. Here's her voice for your reference in the rest of this episode. But if we can remember that we uh, were labeled before people knew anything about us and think that that happens to Hispanic kids today. When you hear this voice, remember 1970s high school, 1980s BS and 1990s PhD about a decade after Rico Malvar. And our third narrator is Rodrigo Fonseca, currently a principal researcher at Microsoft Research, who just until recently was an associate professor at Brown University. Rodrigo was briefly a high school exchange student to the US in 1990s, then returned to do his BS in Brazil, then re-immigrated to the US for his PhD at Cal Berkeley in 2002, and then stayed in the US after getting his PhD in 2008. Rodrigo's first love was not computer science. He first wanted to be an architect and design buildings and sculptures and follow his passion of drawing. I wondered what made him go to and fro. Here's his voice for your reference as we go along in this episode. We both left our parents' houses. We got married. We went to live together. We moved to another country. When you hear this voice, remember, 1990s high school and 2000s PhD, about a decade after Dilma and about two decades after Rico. In this episode, I cover across all the three narrators the effect of the military dictatorship in Brazil on their education, writing entrance exams to Brazilian universities, why computer scientists should still study language. I'm talking about spoken language, not programming languages, spoken language like Portuguese. Their challenges on immigrating here to the US and cultural differences between Brazil and the US and their journeys to and fro from Brazil to the US and back from academia to industry and back, and sometimes from coast to coast within the US. 
This is a lead episode and features excerpts from these three oral history interviews. The episodes following this lead episode contain the full oral history interviews with these individual computer scientists. These oral history interviews are not intended to be a representative sample, nor to help us draw any conclusions. They are just the personal immigration stories of three prominent computer scientists who immigrated from Brazil. Both Rico Malvar and Dilma da Silva had their PhDs in the US, paid for by the Brazilian government. Rico in the 1980s and Dilma in the 1990s. Mind you, this was a time when Brazil was under a dictatorship. Brazil suffered a coup d'etat in 1964 and the military dictatorship lasted until around 1985. I asked both Rico Malvar and Dilma da Silva, who were both children during those decades, about the effect of those times on their lives and education. Here's Rico Malvar, who, if you remember, did his schooling in the 1960s, BS in the 1970s, and PhD in the 1980s, and eventually became an NAE member in the US. Back to his childhood, he says he always wanted to go to college, but his was not a rich family. But I always want, I knew I wanted to go to uh, college, especially because we lived in Brasilia, and there is a good federal university there, and we knew tuition would be free. <laughs> So um, there was no cost. I mean, my family was, was not that rich, so they would not have been able to afford tuition. But since it was free anyway, so all, all we needed is desire and capability. And I work hard to get in. Was there a PhD program in Brazilian universities back then? Yeah, actually, there was in that the, at the Federal University of Rio de Janeiro. Uh, not that great. It's a lot better now. Uh, they were in the early days of putting together a PhD program. So my master advisor, with whom I have kept in touch as well, he always said, look, you can get a great master's program here. We have a good program. We're good professors. But if you want a PhD in signal processing, you're going to have to go to the US or Europe. You, you need to leave because we don't have programs at, at, at the right quality. So he also advised me well. And it was common for universities to hire faculty with uh, a master's uh, degree? Uh, today, no. Today is just like here. You, your PhD is a requirement. But at that time, because there weren't that many people with PhDs, they would say, look, we will hire you at the assistant uh, professor level, not on a tenure track, right? So you're not counting years for, for tenure, but you can, you can already be here in the faculty and start learning to be a professor and all of that. But then within a certain period of time, you have to start a PhD program. If you don't start, you're out. On the other hand, if you do start in a good school, you get a leave of absence to go get your PhD, come back, and then you come back on a tenure track position. And that's roughly the path I took. And the equivalent of NSF in Brazil, the CNPq, they actually created, at that time, it was actually quite big program of scholarships to pick up the best young folks in, in Brazil and, and give them the scholarship so they could go to places like MIT and other places. Um, so, and in fact, when I went to MIT, I had a whole set of colleagues from Brazil. There were like 20 of us or something like that. Employment opportunities in Brazil were quite limited at that time. Today is much better because, you know, the world is flat and there's less difference among countries these days. But at that time, it was difficult. So the percentage of folks who actually continue with an engineering career was only maybe 20 percent 
other people would say, okay, I have an engineering degree, but there is a job here in the government being an accountant. I'm going to take that. I'm going to take some accounting courses. I'm going to take that because that pays well. And I couldn't find a job as an engineer. Or, and I would say a small percentage, maybe 5%, I'm not sure, but probably not much more than that, like me, went off and continued their studies on grad school roughly speaking. Today, the percentages are a little better because we have the programs there. There's a much more vibrant industry to, to absorb the people and so forth. So back then, many studied engineering because they were interested in it. However, there was not really a job market for Not really a, a path to, to, to be an engineer, really a professional engineer. So they did something else. So if you went yeah. to your local office, you know, the accountant or whoever is running the office there, you might uh, meet them and they might actually turn out to be an engineer, very well-trained. Exactly. And that, that was actually quite common as, as much as almost half the class. So Brazil was ruled by the military from 1964 to 1980s uh, and then had a kind of an unstable economy in the 1990s as well. Did that have uh, an impact on your education or as you were growing up? It didn't affect uh, my, my studies, really. It was okay. But it actually had an interesting uh, social psychological impact because it had some level of resilience to me. So going to college and literally having tanks from the army <laughs> driving around the college because there is some potential revolution being cooked inside the, the university. Uh, we First, we were a little afraid, but very quickly that became part of life. And it was like, okay, the life is a strange and you got to be careful because at that time during the military regime, you have to be careful what you say. There was no such thing as freedom of speech. Uh, say too many bad things about the government and you might disappear. And lots of people did. Um, so, and not that I, of course, we, we hated that. We didn't like that. But having to live through that gives you some level of resilience. So that's the only silver lining. Uh, but fortunately, later in the 80s, uh, democracy finally won. <laughs> And, and Brazil became a true democracy with a constitution and an elected president. So it was kind of fun for me. And I was 31 when I finally got to be able to vote for a president. But it was a special time when we switched from the 80s to the 90s. Okay, now we are a democracy. Did the funding to universities or the support for education change at all during the military rule? One interesting thing is that the military folks, the, the leaders there, they knew that education was important. So they always invested well. In fact, they started with the, with the concept of the federally funded universities, which became a, a really a big collection spread all over the country. And those are the ones where I studied. Uh, and then later uh, under the democratic regime, people say, well, we need to preserve that. So they did a good job as much as possible, but it's still um, proportionally speaking, if you look in percentage of the gross uh, product of the country that is spent in education and research, uh, it's not the same as the level as the U.S. Uh, and it could get better. And part of what the National Academy of Engineering in Brazil, the Academia Nacional de Engenharia, tries to do is try to push the government to increase 
the investment in, in education and research, especially in, in science and technology. And Dilma da Silva, who is about a decade after RICO, she did her schooling in the 1970s and BS in the late 1980s. At that time, this little history here, we had a Brazilian president who decided that the way of handling inflation was that anyone with more than, at the time, 50,000 um, cruzeiros, I guess was the, whatever um, uh, it was the name of our currency at that time, more than 50,000 of that currency, they would save your money for yourself, right? So they would take that. And it was not a lot of money that you could keep. So they were taking money out of the market to do that. And uh, of course, later on, uh, we all learned that uh, that the rich and well-connected, they learned enough of that before. So they took their money out and transformed it in dollars or whatever. And then when there was no money, they could buy apartments and everything very, very cheap because people needed cash. But anyway, so any money that me and my parents had saved, it was now being taken care of by the government. And therefore, there was this complication that worried my family that I would be coming here without no more than, you know, $300 cash. Uh, and but a full scholarship that we hoped that the Brazilian government would honor. And of course, they did. And I'm very grateful. So I, I do, I do think that, uh, somehow my, my father with his business of ben, uh, selling alcohol and cigarettes were resilient, resilient. People still drank and people still bought cigarettes. And he managed to, to not suffer as other parts of the economy. So for example, he was not afraid of losing his job because he was, you know, uh, taking care of his own. So in that sense, in, in the sense of having money to take the bus to school, I still lived with them. Uh, and buying my books, they were all very generous and, and, and were able to really do, you know, what I needed. Not like my classmates who may go to Europe on, you know, for summer or something, but, uh, but being able to, to, to do that. In terms of the university, the university was starved by, uh, of resources. In many different ways, but the, the, the funding comes from what will be our sale tax. And, and so as long as there was people buying and selling, the funding was still coming to the university enough to pay salaries. Uh, not, no big investment on networking or computers, but I don't think that was detrimental at the time. And there was also kudos for the Brazil, the, uh, research agency in Sao Paulo, the state of Sao Paulo has a research agency that the income also comes from sale tax. And they are always being very good at uh, managing their money so that they were more resilient. So many the faculty were is still able to, uh, you know, have undergraduate researchers and then themselves could take sabbaticals and that agents would support their sabbaticals. So they were really continue to interact with top researchers abroad, which before the internet was really important. You really had to come and spend time with people because otherwise you have to, you know, wait until papers were published and your library got the, the conference proceedings or the journal. So that was very much slower. When the government paid for your PhD, were there strings attached? Like you have to come back and spend a few? No, I'm so old that there were none. <laughs> There's a very interesting thing. Of course, these days they do J-1 visas. But no, I came on an F-1 visa. I never signed anything. I was going to come back. 
The government's support for education was also reiterated by Rodrigo Fonseca, who came about another decade after Delma, and he did his BS in the late 1990s. So Embraer is, is one of the most successful Brazilian companies. Uh, they, they compete with Bombardier for... for so they're, they're between the third and fourth largest. This is uh, a company that makes these uh, relatively yeah. smaller airplanes that yeah. a lot of the local airlines here fly in the US. Yeah, so, so there's, there's Boeing and, and Airbus... Mm. Right, that they're making the big planes, and then the second tier is uh, Embraer and Bombardier. They make the 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 one seventies, and that's the smaller jets. But the but this the this company was very deliberate because it was military investment. They created this school called ITA, uh, the Institute uh, Technical and Aeronautical. Mm -hmm. It was modeled after MIT. Mm. And it's still um, one of the top technical universities for engineering in Brazil. It's like it's very hard to get into. So this was founded, I think, in the seventies, and they like like super rigorous program, and they formed a lot of the engineers who then went uh, to to be able to work on Embraer, and and they were they started building not commercial planes, but uh, air like, like war planes right uh, mm. military planes uh -huh. Uh -huh. and but but it was like if you if you look back what made it possible to have this high level company like doing doing top level engineering was was this very directed investment and uh, uh -huh. very deliberate investment uh -huh. and it was by the military at the time uh -huh. there was the option of, of trying of applying for this government grant like they would pay for four years of a phd study uh, course, I because I think I had spent this this time in the U.S. I had learned that most universities would actually fund their students, so I actually did not apply through the Brazilian Brazilian program, program. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which which has the advantage of that one comes with strings attached, right? You have to either go back and spend between two years and the amount of years that you spent abroad. Uh, in a university, or you, or you would have to pay back the government if you decided to stay. And so I, I wanted to to keep my options open. This is the Immigrant Computer Scientists podcast episode titled "To and Fro," featuring immigrant computer scientists from Brazil. One unusual experience common to both Rico Malvar and Dilma da Silva is that they were both faculty in a Brazilian university, their own universities, while they were also doing their respective PhDs in the US. Rico in the 1980s and Dilma in the 1990s. Here's Dilma talking about it. You came to the US in 1990 to do your PhD, just to put some yes. years on the timeline. And so that was at Georgia Tech. And then you uh, finished your PhD at Georgia Tech in 1997. Uh, in parallel, um, your CV says that you were faculty at the University of Sao Paulo from 1995 to 2000. The, yeah. The, the time as your faculty overlapped with the time as your PhD? Right. So my, so the scholarship is a four-year, and of course my advisor was uh, would be delighted to fund me for the fifth year that I needed to finish. But that was uh, not feasible. You really had to go back to the country because of my... I had a position at the university secured all the time. 
And not only secured, they were paying me a small stipend to help me. So I did want to go back to the university. My time off was limited. And here's Rodrigo, who did his BS in the late 1990s, talking about how much of his class from Brazil went to grad school at all. Actually, doing a PhD abroad from my class, I was the only one. My class was... was uh, 40 people. So because those back, those 80 were split into two mm-hmm. batches separated by six months. This is my BSc group. Probably, I think, five or six at most ended up getting PhDs from Brazil. So the, I think historically, I'm, I'm, I was probably sort of the second generation of, of, students in in, a, in computer science departments in Brazil, like broadly speaking, mm. meaning that my professors had mostly been educated abroad. So, and some of them were the founders of, of the department. I, I was there when the department was turning 20. And the other day I returned there, the department was turning 40 and I felt really old. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but, but so this, there was a very strong government program to to send people abroad and and fund their phds uh in all sorts of places with the goal of of getting people back right to to create the the infrastructure getting into the bachelor's program in brazil or in a brazilian university requires writing an entrance exam or maybe multiple entrance exams the nature of the entrance exam has changed over the decades first we hear delma da silva who wrote the exam in 1983 and then we hear Rodrigo Fonseca, who wrote the exam twice in the late 1990s, about a decade and a half later. Here's Dilma da Silva. The entrance exam to the university, is that the, a national level entrance exam to all of the universities or the major ones? Now, at the time you had to do for each university one, there are not that many at the time. So in my case, I just did one, University of Sao Paulo, which we believe to be the best university in South America. And uh, I just applied to that one. If it didn't succeed, I will then go a full year of those preparatory exams and probably be a little broader uh, on my search. Uh, there, is, there are a couple of other very good universities in the state of Sao Paulo I could have applied, and I would in future years. History, math, geography, chemistry, physics, everything. I see. Okay. So it's, it's all the subjects in there. And it's just the exam or do they also take school grades into account? Not at all at the time. No, no background. Uh, just uh, the, there is one multiple choice first exam that uh, will, from let's say 100,000 people who are applying, then 30,000 goes to the next phase for the whole university. And that phase is written exam. Um, uh, on all the subjects. And my parents certainly were very proud of me. Rodrigo Fonseca talks about public versus private schools in Brazil and then the entrance exams into the universities. Rodrigo actually came in as the first ranker out of 42,000 students for his local university, UFMG. And he wrote the entrance exam twice, once for architecture and then a little bit later for computer science in the engineering stream. Going back to the to educational system there, the way that it works is you have three universities that are public and they're the best ones usually are and the ones where you where you do research and everything are the the public ones and my city happened to have one of the the best public ones UFMG because it's the state is, itself is is among the three or four wealthiest states in Brazil 
Mm. And in even among schools, uh, you mentioned you went you went to a private school. Yeah, I, I presume that there are public schools as well, and that some students go to public schools too. Yes, absolutely. The there are there's a whole system of public education, and you can go you can go for free, and but the quality varies a lot, and it's actually sort of a an unfortunate flipping of of of, of the system in my view. At least this was what happened back then, in that you have good free public universities, and they they have they had entrance examinations and. The admissions to the university, differently from other places, um, it was solely based on the score that you get on this exam, uh, regardless uh-huh. of you know any extracurricular activities that you did anything. Uh, everything is is summarized by this grade that you do in this. So exam. We're talking of the entrance to the public university itself. Yes, and is that um, is that for? Like any major and any stream, or is that for specific streams like CS or ACE or? So, so the system has changed today. When I when I did it, you would basically choose a major and a program of study, such as you know architecture or medicine or computer science, oh. and then you would do this entrance exam, which was divided in two parts. Uh, one part was a big uh, all subjects multiple choice test that everyone would do equally and then depending on if, if depending on there's a second stage if you if you were classified all subjects this includes um, like subjects that go beyond science and math as well this first phase was you would do all all subjects in from from the high school curriculum so history like, geography social history. everything yeah exactly so depending on your marks on, on this exam, you would be promoted to a second phase of the exam uh-huh. on a separate day in which you would do written tests. They're not multiple choice tests and only on a handful, maybe three or four subjects related to the major you chose. This was in Portuguese or was it in English, the exams themselves? No, completely in Portuguese. There was a there was a big change in the system, a big unification in Brazil. So now there is a national exam. When did that happen? Less than probably less than years or, or so, if I had to guess. Uh-huh. But but so now there is this unified uh, unified national exam uh-huh. that everyone graduating from high school can take, uh-huh. and you get a you get a grade, and now you can submit your grade as, as the application for several schools nationwide. So there's a big clearing house now. Why should computer scientists still study language? Not programming languages, but spoken human languages. Of course, the national language of Brazil is Portuguese, Brazilian Portuguese. I speak with all the three narrators about growing up learning almost everything in Portuguese. First up is Rico Malvar. And on the on the Portuguese side, uh, the the teacher she was great. She really taught me that look, language is not just this boring thing that you have to know grammar and all of that. It's how you express and how to communicate. And you you you're gonna be an engineer. I know that's your dream, but everybody needs to communicate well. So read a lot know more about how to express yourself verbally 
in writing because that's important. And I was fortunate because I think those were two good pieces of advice that I got back in the high school days. At that time, uh, all the way to, to my master, uh, to, to, uh, sorry, to the bachelor, everything was uh, in, taught in Portuguese. But typically, as we got to midway through college, then the books would be written in English. So it was a requirement that you had to at least be able to read English. But the discussions, the, the classes themselves, all in Portuguese. Next is Dilma da Silva, who wrote Brazil's first Portuguese document on object-oriented programming during her master's thesis. It's interesting that because my master's thesis was the first text in Portuguese about object-oriented programming, it was really funny that I had this you know, long waiting list for my thesis. I wish I had documented that, taking pictures or something, uh, so that I could really brag about. I'm bragging anyway, but I meant uh, I would prove. <laughs> but it was, it was, it was fun. Uh, I, I, I was, uh, I was like, oh gosh, this may be the work uh, that I, uh, that a lot of people are reading. There was no, the books were not translated yet, right? Then soon enough, books were uh, translated, the books uh, in the C++ language and, and books in general. And then we have Rodrigo Fonseca talking about language. Now the language of instruction was was all Portuguese. I had I had English was one of the subjects on in my in my school, and ev everyone had language. But it was usually the standard, and I think in that case it's similar to what you see in the U.S. of of the high school language curriculum. It's like yeah, you had one or two forty-five minute sessions per week. And it wasn't enough to get you fluent or, or conversant in, in English. So it was common. I, I had, uh, and many of my classmates had to, like we would go to a separate English school uh, to have, for example, three times a day, three times a week, we had an hour English uh, specific uh, classes just, just to improve. Uh, so the science and math was, all the textbooks, I presume, were also in Portuguese. Yeah. I wondered, what were the biggest challenges on immigrating to the U.S.? First up is Rico Malvar, who first came to the U.S. in 82 to 86 for his Ph.D. at MIT, and then again in 1993 for work when he joined PictureTel. As expected, because I was, you know, I would always read a lot about books and magazines, things in the U.S. I, I would read as much as I could, talk to a few people. I had a few friends who had visited the U.S. and knew about the U.S. I had a couple of friends from the U.S., so I could practice my English with them. But um, it was actually the first time I traveled to the U.S. was when I went to MIT to become, uh, to, to start my studies there. And then the first thing that shocked me is that I had this experience of always being the best kid in class and, you know, things like that. And I get to MIT and I was like, whoa, this is really hard here. Everybody is so good. I'm just an average guy here. <laughs> so I'm going to have to work doubly hard to, to do well here. But so that was the first thing I say, boom, this is gonna be hard but then like anybody I think anybody who went to a good school like MIT I, I felt so fortunate I said wow this place is wonderful I would walk the corridors and go by the departments talk to people say wow they do so much great stuff here 
That's a great place. I'm very fortunate to be here. But it took a while until I felt comfortable. I always, for the first year, everything was a little too hard, but I just, you know, put up with it. And it was a bit tricky because at that time I was already married and my wife and I already had our first little kid, my daughter, Anna. So going to grad school and then she decided and got a scholarship to do a PhD as well. So as we get to the second year, here we are, two grad students. She was at Boston University. I was at MIT, two difficult courses. And at the same time, having to raise uh, a two-year-old kid. It was tricky, but we survived. How did you manage the handoff protocol of handling the, of taking care of the kid while also taking classes and doing work? Uh, it was tricky. We did our best, but sometimes we'd say, honey, I have to study harder because I have a test in two days. And she would say, me too. I'd say, whoops. <laughs> so uh, sometimes we wouldn't do as much studying as we would like because of that. But it, it turns out that interestingly, MIT had actually a nice program. There were many people in similar situation as us. So they actually had separate housing for families. So we were able to give our daughter a semi-normal life, right? Because we would have friends and other kids and a playground. So from her perspective, hey, I'm a kid just like any other kid. She didn't see all the struggles, you know, of the parents trying to study and stuff. Just the work culture of being in industry, uh, first time immigrant being in industry, first time immigrant being in grad school. Can you contrast those two experiences? It was very different because the, the culture is different. Uh, for example, uh, I, one thing I've, I notice is that people are much more business-like in the, in the U.S. I'm overgeneralizing a little bit, but my first impression at least, I mean, we would have a project meeting and things like that. We get to the meeting and people would immediately start talking about the project and things like that. And I was like, that's not how you run meetings. You're supposed to have a lot of small talk before. <laughs> what about the soccer game uh, last night? And then I realized, oh, they don't play much soccer here. <laughs> so those cultural shocks. We run meetings differently. We do things differently. But in in other hands, uh, things are actually quite nice. So at the end, it wasn't that different. But one thing I realized is that here in the U.S., I, I saw there, and maybe to this day, this push to, especially on a, on a startup company, which was my experience at that time, the push to go grab a market opportunity, make money and all of that, that is in, the intensity of that seems to be stronger here than it is in Brazil. In Brazil, we tend to be, of course, there is a lot of that. There's advanced companies that were started there and so forth but we seem to be a bit more laid back in, in, in Brazil. Yeah, let's work, but it doesn't need to be that hard. I'm exaggerating and there's some Brazilians who say, hey, don't say that to me. I work really hard and I did too as well. I had startups in Brazil, but there is a little bit of that, maybe because people see examples here in the US of the upside. They see, oh, an Apple, a Microsoft. They started as a garage thing of a few guys. So. I can go that far. It's more difficult in Brazil, somebody to imagine that I will start a garage thing and become one of the biggest companies in the country. Next is Dilma da Silva, who came to the US for her PhD from 1990 to 1997, and then again for work in 2000. In between, she was in um, 
Brazil. She talks about the challenges after immigrating. Well, first, there is always the chalk that uh, my my English is not, you know, as proficient as we need, but that gets solved very, very fast. Uh, and I also found the classes very fast-paced. I think in Brazil, we had a style where we start things, but the professor has not really decided on the projects. The first weeks, there is never homework. Um It is uh, different. And then at the time, Georgia Tech was on a quarter system. So what happened is that from the very first uh, day, you have this huge homework and, and already projects and was so fast paced. Uh, that took me a while. The second adaptation was reading papers. I was educated to really understand everything that I was reading. So I was started working with this professor who, who was my advisor, Karsten Schwann, in the end. And, uh, and I, he would ask me to read, I don't know, five papers for the next meeting and I could only read one. And then, and then, and then I said, I, but I put the hours, but it's slow. And I think being European, he had been an European education. He just showed me, okay, show me your notes. And they're like, wow, you're going too deep on the paper. So that was this transition to learn how to read a paper, trying to capture what is the problem, how did it convince us that the motivation is good, and what is trying to do that is different from the, the before, and how is it evaluating the success of the approach. And, 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 and he trained me. I'm sure that if I were doing graph theory, the, re the way I was reading paper was appropriate, but not for systems. There are so many more papers. And actually, sometimes the contribution is relevant, but it is one nugget. You just have to find that nugget. It was very weird for me that I would just stay in the lab very late and not to tell anyone uh, that from moving that I always live with my family and you have to tell where you are, otherwise they may be worried, you know, something may have happened. So I was just like, I don't have anyone to tell <laughs> that I'll be spending, you know, being until four in the morning in the lab with, uh, with a colleague. So yeah, that was, um, um, but we're really happy times. I was learning a lot about culture. I had a large number of lab mates from India and, um, You know, from, from learning that my reading of their yes and no with their heads were often wrong to learning about their families was really also interesting. You're listening to the Immigrant Computer Scientists podcast episode titled To and Fro, featuring immigrant computer scientists from Brazil. And Rodrigo Fonseca got a rather early perspective as he spent time as a high school exchange student in the U.S. before he came here for his Ph.D. eventually. Last year of high school, in the first half of my first year of high school, I, I was an exchange student uh, to the U.S. And so you spent six months there, you said. This is in your last couple of years, years of high school? Yeah, in my, in my last year of high school, I, while my, my classmates were all stressing about the, the answer, preparation to the entrance examination to university, because that's basically what you do in the last year of, of high school, I was, yeah, I was being a junior in, in high school in the U.S. How did you come to even consider the possibility of being an exchange student? How did that come about? It was, it was pretty serendipitous. I, my, I, have, I had a cousin who's also a really good friend and so it was it was a kind of a common program in, in Brazil to do this, these exchange programs but I hadn't really thought about it too much but then this cousin of mine said hey I'm, I'm going to this exchange program 
uh, it should be fun. And then I, I asked my parents and yeah, it should be fun. Like, and we decided to do it. Um, and it was covered by the Brazilian government? No, no, this was private. Completely private. So your, your parents had to pay for it. My parents had to pay for it. So then you, you come to the U.S., you start in this, uh, you start studying in the U.S. school as an exchange student. Yeah. What was the, apart from language, which seemed like it was not an issue, what were the other cultural uh, uh, aspects that made it really hard for you to adapt? And I don't mean just culturally, I mean also, you know, like the educational system is very different here. What were the things that struck you the most? I really liked the, this, this aspect of, of the choice and flexibility that you have uh, in, in the American system, right? Because it was very different from, from the prescribed um, system that, that I was coming from in Brazil. I think also because of the way that, that admission to universities work here in the U.S., right? That people weren't studying to the test. They weren't, and the teachers weren't teaching to a test, um, and so it was it was great to be able to explore. And I actually I it was I had I had a lot of fun in, in this this high school had a computer science curriculum uh-huh. and and it was really cool. There was a lab that they were teaching Pascal <laughs> uh-huh. in some IBM PCs and and I remember yeah doing all sorts of interesting things in that class as well. I got I became good friends with the with the teacher. Um, one thing that is interesting about the educational system in Brazil is that differently from the U.S., like everybody in the same year takes the exact same classes. You're sitting in the same classroom and the teachers just come, right? So there's no, uh, there's no, not a lot of choice. So there's a prescribed syllabus and a prescribed set of courses that everyone takes. Yeah, exactly. And and I think it's it's like it's probably like that in many countries, right? In, in the U.S., it's different that you have to have. Like, for example, this figure of advisors that help you choose which classes to take is completely non-existent. Electives, yeah. Sometimes classes would be too easy. And, and it, 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 the system, I think, it, it probably has its advantages. But one disadvantage is that it has, has some people that are behind and some people that are bored, right? Mm-hmm. I, was, I, was usually, um, I was usually done with my, my things early. Mm. And, and I would... Some some teachers were, were good and they would... And there was no way of jumping ahead in grade or anything like that? That was not a thing that was done back then? No, I, I, there was nobody that would jump grades, I think. And, uh, the, the year was, was divided in three quarters and you basically had to have 60% of the points to pass the year. And people, if, if you... The other thing in the system is that because you're taking this whole package of classes, if you fail one subject, then you have to repeat the whole year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And but, the exams, were they spread throughout the year, like you mentioned? Was there one big Uber exam at the end of each of these uh, quarters? Or how was the exams? Usually there were, there was one main exam for each subject in, in the end of each quarter. And pro- probably a mid-quarter exam for each subject as well. Uh, that that would vary. But but there would always be these, these quarterly uh, exams that, that you have to take. And so you had to had sixty percent of the of the points to of the year to be able to pass the year, uh, but they distributed uh, more than sixty percent of the grades or around sixty percent of the grade within the first three uh, quarters, and so usually by the end of 
some people by the end of the third quarter had already uh, achieved the 60 points and would just uh, be done with the year. But um, I, this would usually happen to me, but I would keep going. <laughs> After finishing his MSc from Universidad Federal do Rio de Janeiro in 1979, Rico immediately became a professor. Yes, this is before he did his PhD. This was common in Brazil back in those days. Here's Rico talking about it. A fun thing was the very first class that I was supposed to teach when I was hired. It was March of 1979. I just started and I say, okay, Rico, you're going to teach base electronics. You know electronics well, should be easy for you. I say, oh, of course. But a month before it started, a professor left, and that professor was scheduled to teach advanced uh, digital sequential machine design, which was a final year digital, not analog circuit. And they said, ooh, Rico, we lost the, the, the professor to teach that. And, and, and you learned something along those lines because we saw you study that at, 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 during our master's. Can you teach that? And I said, I'll do my best, but you know, Funny thing, I get into the class, the first day of class, I realize I look at the roster, I look at the kids, and this is like final year, right? I was the youngest person in the room. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a kind of a funny way to start, but it, it worked out all right. So I learned with them and they were patient with me. <laughs> then I asked Rico Malvar why he moved from Brazil Academia in 1993 to industry in the US. You're transitioning from from academia to industry, but also you're coming back to the US a second time. Right. So, uh, let's talk about the first one. So both of your parents were uh, professors. And so uh, what was your internal uh, thinking in moving away from academia? You know, as I was mentioning, I feel like I'm always an engineer first and a researcher later, and I am a hacker and tinker. I just finished assembling my newest computer here, which, you know, it's a Dell computer, but I open it up, put new parts and stuff like that. So I still like to <laughs> to fiddle with, with, with things. And I always felt that it's a different kind of impact that you can have in, in industry. And I have felt if I stayed in academia, I could have more impact, driving more interesting research, graduating good kids and helping their education and all that. Those are all wonderful things, but I would miss on on the opportunity to build things as, as real products. And, and I wanted to do that. So that's why I decided to make the switch because I figure if this doesn't work, I'll switch back to academia and hopefully they'll take me back. <laughs> and with Dilma da Silva, I talked about first moving from Brazilian academia to a US research lab in 2000 and then moving from industry back to academia in 2014. Yeah, so what happened is that a lot of talent was leaving. That is 99. They were leaving the research labs, all of them, in going and founding startups. So the research labs were actually looking at the applications coming through the internet. This is crazy. I tell, like, why did I do that? Um, uh, so, and after I did get an interview offer, then I talked to the many of people from my network that I knew they were in those companies in order to better prepare for the interview and also to, to understand what should I pay attention to. 
And uh, yeah, so but I came to back to the United States to IBM Research, uh, thinking I was going to stay a couple of years and go back to Brazil. And uh, I thought I was going to really miss the teaching. And uh, interesting, I love teaching, but I did not miss the teaching. I think I was still so involved in uh, giving presentations. I become this go-to person that uh, if uh, a senior VP, like, what is this Zen and KVM virtualization thing? Can someone give me a 15-minute presentation? And I really enjoyed doing those kinds. So I guess I was just uh, teaching different people. Uh, without having to grade anyone. <laughs> so I didn't, I didn't miss that. And, uh, and the jobs were interesting. So I did release my position, uh, at uh, the universe so that they could hire someone else and, yeah. uh, it stayed longer. Around the mid 2010s, you have spent, um, something like a decade and a half in, uh, in industry. And then you moved back to academia to become the mm -hmm. head of the department at Texas uh, A&M, the computer science and engineering department. Did you just grow tired of industry or was it a new opportunity in academia that attracted you and made you make the move back? Oh, I thought I always at some point go back to uh, academia because the mission resonates well with me. So I'm someone that at any given day, I did not know the value of the stock, Qualcomm or IBM at all. And I could see that my colleagues all knew. Okay, and I just, of course, I want to do better for the company, but this, you know, overwhelming goal to make it perform better on the market uh, was not something driving me. Of course, we know technology helps people and things like that. But again, in terms of technology health uh, helps people, if that's what I want to do, yes, it's great to be on a place where you take it to market, but the considerations on taking to market are complex, as they should be. The company has a mandate to the board of directors and everything. It's not companies have to go after protecting their assets. It's, it's exactly doing the right thing. But for me, it was really hard to, to embrace uh, that in the same way about getting the, you know, this future proofing that we do when we work in academia, which is forming the, the next generation of researchers is not as much about the results we do today, although they matter, but it's also that you're training people. And finally, with Rodrigo, why did he move from architecture, again, the buildings and the bricks and mortar and sculpture kind, not the hardware kind, to computer science? It was probably, I don't know, probably around eight to 10. So I started begging for a computer uh, for, for my parents. I, I think my mom still has this. I, I made a little diorama of one of the computers that you could buy at the time with like matchboxes and a cutout from the magazine ad for that computer. <laughs> and at the same time, I had a, there was an old typewriter that I had in my house and I, I would draw outlines with very faint uh, pencil lines and then I would put the paper in the typewriter and I would type letters like to form ASCII art uh, with it. So it was, and then finally I, I managed to convince my, my parents to give me a computer. It was, it was, my first computer was an MSX computer. So you're going to prepare for this exam and your dad is telling you, hey, consider medicine. And you're like, well, what about computer science? Or how, how did you handle that? Ah, so there's a twist. In fact, I, as I said, I always liked to, to draw and, and geometry and so forth. Yeah. I, I did my, I did my, I decided to go for architecture. Okay, architecture. 
And this is not computer architecture. We're talking of like architecture, architecture like buildings. and Yes, not computer architecture, yes. actual buildings and designing. As I entered that, a, a good friend of mine who I met in the in, in this supplemental prep course, he, he actually ended up being uh, number two in that tally uh, uh-huh. <laughs> of the 42,000. Uh-huh. He entered UFMG for engineer, electrical engineering, and decided to apply to MIT uh-huh. and, and to other schools in the U.S. This is for grad school? He's undergrad. Applying? Undergrad, okay, I see. Yeah. Uh-huh. So he decided to to try to do that, and, and I, I don't know if he applied to other schools, but he got admitted to MIT and... Uh-huh. and so he basically did six months of UFMG and, and went to MIT. I think it was early enough. He didn't even have to transfer. He just started afresh. I see. And, and that set me... I, I, so I, I did my first year in architecture. I liked it a lot. And But that set my mind. Okay, yeah, actually, this would be really cool. I, I, I was seeing, you know, what he was doing here. And and I thought it was would be really nice. So I, I decided to... In the end of my first year, I decided, okay, I'm going to try to transfer. And, and so I, I got applications to, to a couple of universities in the U.S. I came to visit him at MIT. I liked it a lot. But at the same time, as a plan B, I had, I had, I had decided that I wanted to switch to computer science. I, I was fascinated by the computer science for the library at the computer science department in, in the university. I would spend more time there than at the at the library of the architecture school. And although I really loved the, the 3D and modeling programs, I I remember thinking at the time, no, it would actually be cooler to write AutoCAD than to use AutoCAD. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I, unfortunately, I had to, to do the entrance examination again, two years later. So the first time you wrote the entrance exam, that was for architecture. For, for architecture. Okay, I see. So now that you want to change your major to computer science, you have to write the entrance exam again. Yeah, even though I'm in the same university. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would be possible to transfer, um, but it would take one extra. It, it would take longer. So I said, okay, I'll just, I'll just do the test again. So I, I passed again and I entered uh, computer science. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... I started doing my first semester there and, and waiting the pros and cons of, of moving to the US and I, I looked at the curriculum and I thought, you know, this this course here is seems super strong. I think I'll be able to, to learn what I need here and, and, and maybe go to the US later. And so so I decided to, to stay. I also met my wife in the architecture school. I see. Okay. Which was the biggest plus of all, right? <laughs> There are these key moments that could have changed things so significantly, right? That, for example, finishing my master's, had I decided to go to to one of those startups, um, uh-huh. I have no idea where I, I would have been. Um, or I could have continued in architecture. Um, uh-huh. I, I still liked to go to the library and look at like international architecture magazines and and and, and look at, you know, contests and things like that so i think you know it it, it could have been possible to mm. to have a, a co-career there and i think i converted my 
my love for you know for graphic arts and drawing and so forth into photography which is a hobby that I still have and you can see some of uh, Rodrigo Fonseca's photographs featured on our blog posts for this episode at csimmigrant.org check them out this is the immigrant computer scientists podcast episode titled to and fro featuring immigrant computer scientists from brazil east coast versus west coast Dilma da Silva moved from IBM Research near New York City, East Coast, to Qualcomm in the West Coast in the 2010s, early 2010s. Here she talks about comparing the East Coast and the West Coast work cultures and her famous Starbucks test. For me, when I went to Starbucks to do reviewing papers at Starbucks, everyone who came to talk to me, they thought I was a venture capitalist because I'm older, and they would try to tell me. Uh, even, you know, they have a solution even for the way that I had my computer and my iPad together when I was working. And uh, I preferred when I was in New York City, and the person who talked to me at Starbucks was, uh, uh, okay, often a writer, but often also a nurse, uh, a teacher, Oh, so I, <laughs> I, I love us computing, but the concentration in Silicon Valley was too high for me. So I said, oh, I should look geographically. And that's when I um, decided to look at the academic uh, positions. Very interesting that Starbucks is an interesting litmus test of what the social um, circle is. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, yeah. I, uh, I, yeah. So that's also a consequence of living in small apartments. So notice here, I don't go to Starbucks to review my papers. My I can vary by staying in very different parts of my house. But in New York, I lived in a, in a in very small apartment. In Mountain View, I lived in a very small apartment. So it was, okay, I have to spend six hours reviewing papers. I'm going to Starbucks. And here's Rico Malwar, who moved from Pitchertel in the U.S. East Coast to Microsoft in 1997. He compares the two coasts. Here at Microsoft, I mean, many years ago, but to this day, you can go to a meeting where you're discussing, for example, technologies where you want a patent or license or something, and there will be some lawyers in the meeting. And some of those lawyers will be in shorts and very colored shirts. Um, typically, if you are in the same meeting in the East Coast, they're all in suits. <laughs> <laughs> but other than that, not not much really. There is that, you know, that thing, okay, who has the best schools? Is Stanford the best school in engineering or is it MIT or they're all very good. I don't think you can you can tell one from the other. They have the similar um intensity, they have the similar let's drive opportunities for startups and, and things like that. There I, I found very similar things in, in the community here in the in the West Coast versus the East Coast. It's more the, the culture and the societies. People here in the West Coast seem to be a little more relaxed and laid back than in the East Coast. Unless you go down in the east, if you go to the southeast like Miami, then it flips. <laughs> In fact, you go to Miami, you're going to bounce on, on many, many Brazilians because Brazilians love to go to Miami. Rodrigo was not sure when he got his PhD in 2008 whether he wanted to go into academia or industry. He went to academia first and then industry later. Here he talks about his decision point right after his PhD. So returning to your timeline, so you finish your PhD at Berkeley in 2008 and then you spend mm -hmm. uh, a year at Yahoo Labs as a postdoc. It sounds like even back then you were considering industry as an option. The option of going to industry as a career 
never left your mind, it sounds like. Is that a correct thought? Or were, did you already want to become a faculty member by the time you finished at Berkeley? No, nothing so easy, right? No, I, I again came to the same uh, question when I finished Berkeley. I wasn't set that I wanted to, to become a faculty member. And I did apply to universities and to industry research and even to a couple of startups. And I got a, a couple of offers from each camp. I got an offer from Google back in 2008. I got, uh, and in the end I was, I was torn between Brown and Meraki. Hmm. And which later got acquired by Cisco. Meraki at the time had about 10 people. You always think back, right? When you, when you, like five years later, when Meraki was acquired by Cisco for over a billion dollars. <laughs> uh, let, let me put it this, this way. I, I was at an SDI one year uh, after Meraki had been acquired and Meraki was one of the sponsors for the conference. And so there was this, a uh, person from HR, like trying to actively recruit recruit people for Meraki, right? And then um, and she approached me. Oh, so uh, you should explore opportunities with Meraki. We're doing really interesting things, uh, and now we have, you know, even more potential for growth. And then I I, I told her, yeah, um, I already had an offer for for Meraki once, back in two thousand and eight, and she was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Brazilians and Brazilian Americans are Hispanics, so they have interesting perspectives on diversity and inclusion. Here's Dilma da Silva first. So in your time in Georgia Tech as a PhD student and then uh, later as the head of the department, you have interacted with students from underrepresented groups uh, who grew up in the U.S. Uh, can you contrast uh, your upbringing with, uh, w- with theirs? And, if, and specifically, I want to ask if there are lessons that can be learned from uh, the Brazilian system and from what you, uh, the environment that you grew up in that, would, that might improve the situation here in the U.S.? Yeah, so many of us who come from South America uh, and are here, one could argue that uh, our experience may be uh, useful, may be relatable to uh, Hispanic students. But that's not always the case. Many people, they did come uh, from um, uh, very uh, a lot of support and a lot of understanding on how uh, research works. So therefore, they they just were more privileged in that way. Another thing is that uh, when you are in South America, no one may have those biases that you may not be as prepared just because you speak Spanish or Portuguese or something like that, right? Uh, it may be that they may have other reasons that you're female or you, uh, you live in the right, the wrong part of the city or something like that may still happen. Uh, so in that sense, it's not translatable. I think for me, 
uh, I would see the translation more with the really first generation. Uh, in particular, here in Texas, there is a number where the parents are still not comfortable with English. So in that case, I think that my my parents not being comfortable with the way information is conveyed, for example, not be able to handle maps, right? Uh, to before Google Maps took us or any of those took us from one place to the other, that you really had to have maps. It was something inaccessible to my friend, my, 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 my family. So in that sense, I think it is relatable. In particular, if they have a strong accent like I do have, every now and then people make judgments about you that disappear once you know they know that you are an engineer or a professor or something like that. But when people don't know anything about you, uh, they may make assumptions about uh, what is your job, what is your social standing. And so if we, from abroad, uh, from any country, if those uncomfortable moments, which, you know, fortunately, they're not that common, I hope, but if we can remember that we uh, were labeled before people knew anything about us and think that that happens to Hispanic kids today, it does happen today. It doesn't matter if the kid has parents who are medical doctors or if the kid is a dark, uh, is, is, is still a, a, a dreamer kid with the parents who are not citizens. It doesn't matter. Uh, they do get labeled. And uh, I hear from many of the students here that uh, high school counselors do not suggest they go to engineering. We have a student here who graduated with all honors you could imagine, you know, really uh, ex exceeding, but it joined Texas A&M in Kinejola. I don't even know which was the major. It was not engineering. No one ever even told him. They got here and they had roommates in engineering. And just like, oh, this is cool, and managed to change and, and do super well. So I do think we can remember all of us um, uh, in, in, in that. In that. Um, some of us professors may have students who find our accent is hard to understand. It's uh, As a department head, Andy, I thought really interesting that uh, on student evaluation, some students will say, Professor X has no accent. First, why they're telling me that, but actually Professor X has a strong accent, but Professor X projects the voice, talks very loudly, clearly, um, and while some of us, we tend to mumble. And I would see the students commenting on accent and really, uh, it, it, and really, if again, if you, if you are a faculty who your English is uh, not as good as, you know, um, uh, someone who has English as a first language, if you could think about being baby people judging your capability of teaching based on that, then it, 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 we can kind of think that uh, people may look at an African American graduate student and assume it comes from a minority serving institution where computer science was really weak. Just assume that and start to talk about that. And that may be true, actually, we hope that we are getting students in our graduate programs that they didn't have the best computer science because otherwise we have to wait until everyone has good computer science. They'll take too long. We can take smart people that are willing to work and help them to do better, but we shouldn't assume. We, sh we should assume as much as we assume 
from my students, uh, you know, that uh, we don't know exactly where they did their undergrad. And here's Rico Malwar. Yeah, you know, uh, you see myself, I, I, I am part of a minority to some extent, right? I am Hispanic. I come, come from South America. By now, I'm, I'm, I, I don't see, I, I see myself more as a mixture, right? A good chunk of my life has been in the United States anyway. So I, I'm a dual, co- I, I, I am a dual citizen and, and I have this dual culture in, in, in my brain. And I'm happy that my family is like that. My kids are like that. We're all bilingual, and I think that is all good, right? The idea that you, you've exposed to more than just one society, and then you have all, 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 all of that. So that puts your mind more to see, see, there is diversity in the world. There's diversity in culture, diversity in people. So, But then you come here, and sometimes you don't see much diversity. For example, both in academia and in companies, one typical example of lack of diversity is when you're building teams. For example, you're in industry or, or in academia, you're building a new research project and you need people, you need students, you need interns. What do you do when you need the interns? You go call the professors you know in the universities you already know. Hey, do you have cool students to send to my project? And then you don't realize uh, that you're pre-selecting <laughs> who your students will be. No, you should look much broader. You, should, you shouldn't just call your friends. <laughs> you should try a much broader search. And, and when you broaden your search, are you really taking all of society? Uh, are you creating a program that is attractive to men, to women, to Hispanics, to people who are black and so forth? So, and at the end, diversity is good because it helps drive innovation. With more diversity, you have more innovation, diversity of upbringing, diversity of perspectives, people think differently. So I do think that with diversity, you gain in two ways, right? First, from a psychological and societal equal opportunity to everybody, we're all the same. But second, because innovation really benefits from diversity. So for a few years, I've been involved in many programs inside the company and some outside together with academia to help foster diversity. A good example is programs that help women in technology or women in computer science. I found it interesting that you mentioned this uh, dual parts of the brain because of growing up in a different land and then also being in the U.S. for for many decades. I feel that that um, kind of mind frame is is a, a bonus, is a positive thing to have uh, just inside of oneself in terms of uh, being in a creative profession. And I also feel that uh, that experience has some analogs to uh, the, um, the mind frame of uh, several computer scientists and electrical engineers who belong to some of the groups that are in the minority. Because I think everyone brings something unique. So I just want to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So that that diversity of uh, upbringing, right? Having grown somewhere and and going to another place is good. The diversity, for example, of a career, the fact that I spent a good chunk of my career in academia, a good chunk in industry, that diversity, I think, has helped me understand things better, help understand the impact of technology and research better. yeah, I, 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 I do think that everything we do, and it's an everyday, um, it's not just say, oh, I want to do diversity. It's every day. For example, you go to a meeting uh, and you have a meeting with researchers in engineering. And then Joe, an engineer, comes and says some idea. Oh, what if we do X? 
And everybody said, oh, that sounds good. And then later, Bob, a researcher, says exactly the same thing. And everybody says, oh, Bob, that's such a wonderful idea because Bob is this prominent researcher. And they say, hey, wait a second. Joe had said exactly the same thing before, but nobody paid attention because Joe is an engineer. So, and that's the kind of thing we, we, we shouldn't let happen. Or you have a meeting and there's all a lot of people and there's only a couple of women and when they want to say something everybody else talks over them so if i'm in one of those without exception i would say hey mary what's your opinion about that bring them in uh because you know everybody has good ideas and more often than not they will bring in ideas that will make a difference so it's silly of us to to not open to those opportunities this was the lead episode on the Immigrant Computer Scientists podcast titled To and Fro, featuring immigrant computer scientists who went to and fro between Brazil and US, between academia and industry, and from outside CS into computer science. But what you heard in this episode were merely excerpts. Coming up in the next episode is the full interview with Rico Malvar, NAE member and IEEE fellow and Doen in the area of signal processing and in Microsoft Research, where Rico describes his childhood joy of tinkering with electronics and electrics, of being in two countries at the same time, of managing his family while in grad school, and of finally making the jump from academia to industry. All the music used in episodes of the Immigrant Computer Scientist podcast is royalty free. All voice recordings were performed with and are reproduced with full consent of narrators and participants. You can find music credits on our website. Join the online discussion about this podcast on all major social media, including Twitter and Facebook, with the handle CSImmigrant and hashtag CSImmigrant. And of course, the episode guide is available at our website, csimmigrant.org. This is the Immigrant Computer Scientists Podcast.